0: I've got the key to the kingdom, the world can't do me no harm This is the Daily Podcast from St Paul's Nice Bridge, an invitation to pause for not more than ten minutes each day to think, to reflect and to pray. This week, as the church year draws to its close, Phil Davis explores The idea of the Kingdom.
1: Yesterday, on the last Sunday of the Church's year, we celebrated the Feast of Christ the King, or to give it its full title according to the Roman Church, The Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe. I don't know about you, but the title sits rather uncomfortably with me. King of the Universe seems to speak of a warrior king, of earthly power, dominions and riches, and not instinctively of the kingship of Christ, who challenged earthly rule, whose throne was the cross, whose crown was of thorns, and whose kingdom was one of unity, peace and love. But in the context of 1925, when this festival was instituted by Pope Pius XI, it was an attempt to assert the kingship of Christ in an unstable world. Many of the great earthly empires and monarchies had collapsed, fascism and communism were growing across Europe, and the church felt under threat. Secularism was growing throughout the Western world, and the question of the Papal States wouldn't be settled until four years later, when Mussolini's government agreed that the Vatican would be recognised as an independent sovereign state. The church had to fight its corner in a world of competing creeds, both religious and none. Here in England, during the first half of the 20th century, the church faced similar challenges in finding its relevance in the modern world. The 1851 census revealed that 40% of the population regularly attended public worship. An amazing proportion by today's standards, but this was shocking to the Victorians. And so they built churches, lots of them. This coincided with the Anglo-Catholic revival within the church, with its focus on the beauty of holiness and liturgy and buildings to the centrality of the sacraments and a commitment to the welfare of the people through the setting up of schemes for education, welfare and basic health care. The church essentially created the welfare state. This apparent renewal in the church kept things going until the early 20th century, but church leaders were anxious. In the late 19th century, John Henry Newman noted that across Europe, things were tending with great rapidity to atheism in one shape or another. The rise of science and industry, the influence of Darwinism, and the experience of poverty and war left the people wondering where this God of love and peace was to be found. And then the state started taking on welfare and education, and so the social action at work of the Anglo-Catholics dried up with the introduction of the welfare state in 1945. The church had demonstrated how people should be cared for, and this was fused into the life of the nation, a triumph for the church on the one hand, but left it with nothing to do on the other. And so the people disengaged, the churches emptied, and we've been trying to get them back ever since. Archbishop Temple commissioned a report, published in 1945, entitled Towards the Conversion of England. The focus was to be on evangelism, particularly the idea of worker priests and chaplains. And then again in the 1990s, the churches of the Anglican Communion were to observe a decade of evangelism, a boost for church growth and the proclamation of the gospel at the end of the second millennium. Since then, we have had the Fresh Expressions movement and now the church planting movement, all attempting to re-evangelise the nation and build up the church. And to what effect? Well, on the surface, the numbers appear to keep on going down. In fact, according to the Church of England's own statistics, the downwards line over the past 40 years shows a more or less constant rate of decline. In 1980, just under 3% of the population regularly attended Sunday services, and by last year, it was barely above 1%. On this trajectory, there'll be nobody in our churches in 50 years' time. But hang on, this experience isn't universal in the church, is it? When I come to St Paul's Knightsbridge on a Sunday morning, I don't feel this decline. In fact, in the fifteen or so years I have been worshipping at St Paul's, our community has grown, not least of all during the recent pandemic when we have welcomed new friends from near and afar. And this is the experience of other parishes too. It's not all doom and gloom. I also wonder whether we are counting the right things. Is bums on seats on Sunday the best way of measuring the success of the church? Is worship the only measure of the health of God's kingdom on earth? We pray in the Lord's Prayer each day, Thy kingdom come. What are we praying for? Is it for higher attendance at public worship, or is it about something more? In Acts eight, just before his ascension into heaven, Jesus tells his disciples that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus seems to be giving the disciples a framework for mission for how they might go about living out the great commission he gives them at the end of Matthew's gospel, go to all nations and make them my disciples. If the church is tasked with witnessing to Christ in the world, that is to make his kingdom of unity, peace and love known to all people, what might this look like for the church in our time? Join me each day this week to explore this question together, beginning tomorrow with Jerusalem.
0: And you can join Phil Davis for another podcast in this short series tomorrow and on Wednesday evening at 8.30 in our Zoom room for a discussion before Compline. This is just one of many podcasts available from St Paul's Knightsbridge. Search on SoundCloud or Spotify for details.